I'm Gregory Berg, and I'm just back from the spring concert tour of the Carthage Choir, led by their new conductor, Dr. Maggie Burke. It was a spectacular success in every way, and each and every one of their concerts ended with the rousing spiritual Hark I Hear the Harps Eternal in the classic arrangement by the great Alice Parker. In honor of that, I want to replay a conversation that I was privileged to record with the legendary Alice Parker way back in 1995 when she visited the campus of Carthage College for several days. By the way, Alice Parker later this year will be celebrating her 98th birthday. Enjoy. And it's an honor for me to be speaking today on the morning show with composer and arranger Alice Parker. Anybody who has sung choral music in just about any venue is acquainted with that name and with her music. Alice Parker has several areas of, of uh, specialty, shall we say, and emphasis, but actually her resume ranges far and wide. She is here on the campus of Carthage College, actually, for the annual organ festival. And for this event, she has composed a new organ work. And uh, so we're going to talk about that first of all. Give us a little preview of this organ work that will be heard on Wednesday evening's concert and played by Susan Glatzbach. I was absolutely delighted to uh, receive a commission to write an organ work. I keep composing all the time, but I don't often get commissions to do things that aren't choral or vocal. And I was an organ major all those years ago when I was in college and, and loved the instrument and uh, was delighted at her uh, request that it be uh, based on something that was in the hymnal, which is used here in the chapel. And so what I did was to choose uh, five different uh, hymn melodies, which were all German chorale melodies, and weave together a fantasia uh, using those melodies, which uh, may sound familiar or they may sound um, a little bit jauntier than usually heard in church or a little bit slower than usually heard in church. But it was a great fun for me to work with them. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your process as a composer. I've had the privilege of speaking to several composers uh, in, in these interview situations and a lot of times I like to ask if, uh, if as a composer you're a little more like an inspired Mozart where the notes just sort of pour onto the page or if you're more like a Beethoven and is it a more tortured process with a lot of erasure and yeah. crossing out? I think it, it's one of the things you learn as you try to do anything creative is how your mind works and I don't think any of us choose but uh, I don't want to indulge in comparisons, but unless it comes easily to me, I don't feel as if it's right. If I mm. get into tortured uh, erasures, I know I'm on the wrong track. Mm. What I like is to live with my basic materials. If it's just a text and it's going to be a composition, then I live with the text long enough to totally memorize it and get it so that I... I respond to just as many of the different kinds of cues it's giving me as I can, and then start to write, and write always away from the piano. But I want to have that sense of flow that I'm doing a whole uh, section or a whole movement in one uh, one real uninterrupted uh, uh, time of getting it down on the paper so that it's like um, stringing a clothesline or something. You don't put up the first six feet and then the next six feet with no pole. 
you have to get it all up at once. And it's that sense of flow all the way through that for me holds the piece together finally at the end. Once you get that through, which may look like chicken tracks on the paper, I mean, there's hardly anything there, but you've accounted for all of that time. Then you can go back at your leisure and fill in and work anywhere forwards or backwards in the piece. I imagine as a composer, one of the skills you develop over time is the ability to hear in your head exactly what this is going to sound like when it leaves the page and is performed or sung. Uh, is, is that a, sort of a sixth sense that you had f from the beginning, or has that been, been something you've had to develop? It was, um, it was always easy for me to hear single line. Just I always, when people say, oh, I don't know how you do that, I say, well, listen inside your head. Can you hear happy birthday right now? And almost everybody says, well, yes. And I say, well, it's exactly that. I can hear tunes in my inner ear. And then it is a skill that you develop to hear not only the tune, but the bass line along with it, or the implied harmony along with it. And once you get up to writing for full orchestra, um, I'm sure that there are excellent people who really can hear all of that at once. I can't. Um, I have to do it layer by layer, kind of, and I check back with the keyboard when I'm working on something that's really thick like that. But if I'm writing four-part choral music or even five or six, I can really hear in my head what it is that I want, so I don't have to rely on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. Do you rely on any other ears for the ultimate judgment of your music, or do you feel very secure that you know when uh, a composition or an arrangement is is, is really first-rate stuff and ready. No, I can't, I can't judge whether it's first-rate stuff. I can, the only thing I can do, and I do just work by myself, is know that it's as good as I can get it right at that particular moment. I think one of the things that is very clear to me that I think uh, um, uh, is maybe different from the way other people work is that if I spend, you know, a long time, like several months, getting a text really into my head and thinking about different ways that I want uh, to treat it and uh, hearing more and more clearly what I want at certain places, when I sit down to actually do that first sketch that I want to get down all at once, um, I'm writing down the way it feels to me that day. If I had done it the day before, it might have turned out very different, or the day after, it might have turned out very different, or even an hour earlier or later. It's like a dancer. You start from where you are right then. You can't summon up yesterday's energy or foretell tomorrow's. You start with where you are at that moment. And because you're, you're doing this balancing act of energy, I love that dance analogy, um, it takes you in a different direction each each time you come to it so that there's no such thing as for me of working out all of these different little possibilities and then then copying them in and and putting a piece together that way like a quilt though i'm absolutely certain that many people work that way and that it's a fine way to work it's just that my mind works that yeah. in that other way we're speaking with composer and arranger alice parker your uh, love of composition began when I started writing when I was eight. I started taking piano lessons when I was five, and it just seemed absolutely natural to me to make up pieces and then to try to, to learn to write them down. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably is very natural for most kids. We just don't hold it out in our society as the thing that, of course, they should be doing. Though I think music training with small children is leaning much more in that direction now than it used to be, which is a good thing. Your name, of course, will be linked forever and ever with Robert Shaw. 
Um, I should mention that uh, public television viewers in this area were able to see him last night uh, in a, an anniversary concert with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Uh, when did your collaboration with him begin and how? Um, I was a student of his. He taught at Juilliard School in New York for three years, and I was just lucky enough to intersect with the last two of those years. Uh, I had graduated from college in organ and composition, and then got very discouraged about trying to be a 20th century composer writing in 12-tone style, and decided that perhaps I shouldn't try to be a composer after all, and that uh, the choral work was something I'd done all my life in church and in school. And uh, that was what I wanted to pursue, and uh, went down to Juilliard and started working with Shaw and with Julius Herford, and felt as if I had never really listened to anything before in my life. It was a marvelous experience of just really listening for the subtleties of choral tone and what can happen with words and what happens when voices are really used absolutely marvelously. Over the years, and we're talking about quite a number of years that you have written in this field, has your basic approach, your basic style changed in any significant way, or has the Alice Parker stamp remained fairly consistent? Well, in some ways it's quite consistent. I'm amazed when I looked back at things that the few things that I wrote in the 50s and, and 60s uh, while I was so busy doing the arranging and also having my own family and very concerned with, <laughs> with things that I had uh, would have had no time to do um, in, in the way of, uh, of working on composition. But for the few things from the back, I find things that amaze me that I see things with changing meters and with um, a certain amount of, of, uh, of play fun with counterpoint and with, uh, with uh, um, of basically uh, linear uh, melodic style. But I really did learn so much from the 20 years that I did the arrangements with Shaw um, and in line of what I just said about responding to what a text can say and what voices well used will, will do. Um, and that's what informed the composing when I went back to composing after having written almost nothing for those 20 years. Uh, starting again and being far enough away from the school situation that I didn't feel apologetic about not writing uh, um, experimental music, new music, uh, realizing that there's plenty of space for people writing in whatever style is right for them to write and that nobody had any right to tell me what style I should write in. All I can write in is what I honestly hear myself. And so um, I started writing and then very soon it developed into uh, what is certainly the my, still my style. I was just rehearsing here with uh, two very talented young people some music for flute and guitar that I wrote 25 years ago when I was just starting to do that writing again. Mm -hmm. And it's in a totally old-fashioned style, and yet I don't think that anybody would mistake it really for either Mozart or a 16th century uh, duet. There's just enough little changes in it to make it uh, quite clear that it is 20th century music. It's just extremely mild. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you're on campus uh, here at Carthage working with uh, several different ensembles and soloists and so on. What is it like uh, here and, and elsewhere when your music is being uh, taken up by 
by musicians and uh, in particular young musicians doing doing their best with uh, music that is sometimes uh, very challenging. Oh yes, well I live my life this way, traveling around the country. Um, you introduced me as a composer and arranger, and actually I call myself a composer, conductor, and teacher. Mm. And I love those three things and the way that they interact. Um, I'll take a, uh, a long way around to answer your question. <laughs> it seems to me that there is absolutely no such thing as a perfect performance in music, that it is always different. The music isn't there until it exists in sound, and the only way it can come into sound is through a human being, and every single time it comes through a different human being, it's going to sound different. Um, what I want to do is I come someplace for a fairly short time like this and intercept a learning uh, curve is to uh, try to ascertain uh, at what point on that curve they are. And mm -hmm. almost always I find that people are basically well prepared with what the basic notes and rhythms are. And then to try to show them how, this will sound funny, how um, uh, frustrating the page is for me as a composer. That I can only notate about 5% of the information I would like to be able to put down. And it's a very mm. uninteresting 5%. It's a very bald <laughs> pitch, F sharp, quarter note, which doesn't say anything about kind of the emotional uh, frame that's behind it or the type of dance that's going on or the way this should be accented or how it should connect with the other notes, what the mood is that it should be sending out. And all of those are really the important things. And so when I come up against these, these young people who are at this stage in their studies and have fairly easily mastered the technical difficulties of it, but they are still very much stuck in the page way of looking at the music. And it is such fun for me to use any pictorial or or graphic methods that I can to get them to this other way of looking at it. So they're always thinking of the larger context in which these pitches and rhythms are existing. And most of them, when they catch on to that, change right over and all of a sudden you get very expressive music making, which is what I love to uh, foster. My first encounter with you, I mean, aside from singing your music in many different venues. In fact, the very first big solo I had was in your arrangement of um, I know that my Redeemer oh. lives. I was a freshman yeah, in college. Oh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, yeah. Um, but I remember hearing you on public radio in, uh, I don't remember the venue, um, leading the audience. I think it was an audience, not really a congregation, mm -hmm. in Children of the Heavenly Father. Oh, and that was the Garrison Keillor show. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. And uh, trying to show them a new way to a, approach a, a beloved old yes. hymn that everybody right. knows in their sleep. Do you find that uh, people are at all resistant to the idea of taking a, a beloved old hymn and, and uh, approaching it in, in, in such a vastly different way? Um, I generally try not to take the two familiar hymns, because I don't, I don't see any reason to change them. In this particular case, Garrison had suggested that we do this one because he mm. knew everyone loved it. And of course, I didn't grow up in the Lutheran church and in the tradition where that was one. It wasn't in the Pilgrim Hymnal in New England where mm. I grew up. Um, and one of the things that I, I learned so much from those years with Shaw was this thing of approaching a melody and trying to think who would have sung it first? Where would it have been sung? In what connection? And that is a folk 
tune. And most folk tunes tend to come out of people's daily lives, something that they do during their daily lives that makes them want to sing it. And uh, that one, for me, has a, a tenderness that comes partly from the words, but it's also built into the melody, that it's almost a little lullaby, and that, that it shouldn't be sung with a great big tone because it's childlike. And if we become as children in that childlike, not childish sense, um, then we use our voices more lightly and very tenderly. And so that if we have that sense of singing it as if we were indeed children, even though we are, well, are we speaking children of the Heavenly Father? Um, you're speaking kind of as an adult, but I still, I still like that lightness. And I want people not to miss a single one of those word ideas that are given forth in the text. So that we have to be awfully careful to really inflect commas, not just sing over them, and to make words sound different. The words that mean different things sound different. Because that kind of focus, it takes a lot of concentration to do that. But as soon as we focus that way as we sing the music, it acts almost like a magnet. And other people listening are drawn into it because we are preaching the words so clearly. We have brass in the background, so you need to be uh, going pretty quickly here. One last question. I know that as Susan Klotzbach, the uh, college organist who will uh, play the premiere of your work uh, uh, on Wednesday's concert, I know when she sought to, to secure you for this event, uh, she said every weekend is booked through 2002 or something, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, you have just a, a incredible schedule. You, you like to keep very, very busy, apparently. Is, uh, is that the way it's going to be for a long time? Well, I, I keep hoping that with age will come wisdom. I have not seen any signs <laughs> of it yet, but I would love to, to cut back a bit and have more time to linger on the, on the commissions so that I have a chance to not just do them as I'm wildly finishing something else up, and more time to visit with my grandchildren and um, you know take things a little slower. But I don't know whether my particular nature will ever let that come to pass. <laughs> Well, Alice Parker, we're uh, honored to have you here and glad that you made room for us in your busy schedule. And, and I'm pleased that you made room for me for this interview uh, this afternoon. Well, thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. And here is the Carthage Choir in a recent performance of Alice Parker's classic arrangement of Hark I Hear the Harps Eternal. The soloists are soprano Lauren Hummus and tenor Avery Morris. And conducting the choir is Dr. Maggie Burke.